you guys made the right choice to be here uh, with God's people on Sunday morning and to be in the Word of God together. So if you would, grab your Bible and turn to 2 Peter as we're going to jump in and hear from the Lord through the reading of His Word and the study of His Word this morning. And this morning, it's about the certainty of God's Word. How do we know that the Bible is true? Can we trust the Bible? Peter takes on that, that topic this morning, so I just want to read for us. We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16, all the way down to verse 21 this morning. And uh, let me just read it, and then I'll open us in prayer as we jump in. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning, morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are about to jump in and study the Word of God, and we can't do that apart from the Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would be our teacher, that you would make these truths known in our hearts, and that you would embed them deep, form convictions out of them, so that our hearts and our lives could be transformed and changed so that we can better serve you on this earth while you give us breath. In Jesus' name, amen. There's not a lot of things in this life that you can be certain about these days. Uh, we live in a world of uncertainty. Uncertainty about our health, uncertainty, uncertainty about the weather, uncertainty about driving down the 405, uncertainty about the future, uncertainty about the economy, Uncertainty about the global market, uncertainty about wars and rumors of wars, uncertainty about the government, uncertainty for our children, uncertainty for our grandchildren. However, there are some things that we can be certain about. We can be certain that today Chick-fil-A is going to be closed. For all of you who wanted to stop by, it's still Sunday. We can be certain about taxes. We can be certain about traffic. We can be certain about In-N-Out Burger being the best burger joint uh, in America. These are all certainties of life that we have. But even with all these uncertainties, we can be absolutely certain about this, that God's word is trustworthy, that God's word is certain. And Peter takes on this topic for us, the certainty of the word of God. But before we jump into 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21, we need to go back and talk about the first time that someone ever doubted the word of God. To do that, turn with me all the way back to Genesis 
chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. The war on the certainty of Scripture begins just days into humanity. Genesis chapter 3, as you, you know, the first two chapters of Genesis are, uh, are the creation account. When God made something out of nothing, the very first verse of our Bible tells us that, and then God created man and woman. Not long after that, and we, we pick it up in, in chapter 3 and verse 1, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to woman, here's where you get to underline your Bible, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. What is happening here? Uh, what is happening here is this. There is no evil in the world. There is no sin in the world. There is no corruption in the world. Nothing is dying and nothing is decaying right now. And Satan has one bullet that he can shoot at humanity. And that bullet that he can shoot at humanity is to cast doubt in the word of God. And he does. Did God actually say that? Does God actually mean that? I mean, we just had in the garden this, this beautiful marriage between a man and a woman, and just moments after that, there begins a war on truth. Is this actually the word of God? Did God actually say that? And what, what Satan wanted to do and what he endeavors to do, and he endeavors to do it still today, is to cast doubt amongst the believer to say, is it really God's word? Did God actually say that? Can we actually believe the Bible? Is the Bible certain or not? I want to tell you guys, this isn't just a war today on the word of God. This has always been that way. Is this actually the word of God? Did God actually say this? Is it actually true? Seeds of doubt in the mind of humanity to get them to question God. Get them to doubt God. And what Satan did worked. It worked. God didn't actually mean that. He didn't actually mean you would die. Because of that, they... As you know, the story goes on. Adam and Eve would eat uh, of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. And in that way, when they would do that, we get down to the first time that the gospel is shown to us where Adam and Eve don't die, but something dies in its place. A substitute dies in its place. That's how they got the skins that they were able to, to wrap around them and dress themselves in. But once you start to doubt the word of God, once you start to question the Word of God, and maybe some of you even have, have doubts right now about the Word of God, what happens is, is that you, you open yourself up to all different kinds of temptations. You open yourself to all different kinds of philosophies, to all different kinds of man-centered ideas, and you begin to say, maybe something else out there is more truthful than the Bible. You begin to question this. Is the Bible even the Word of God? 
is homosexuality a sin? Is abortion a sin? Is transgender mutilation of the body sinful? Is, is hell real? Is, is heaven real? The, who goes to heaven? Is God just? Is God loving? Is God caring? And, and on and on and on and on, all these questions come into your mind, and you begin to say, can I actually trust the Bible or not? Just fill in the blank with the questions that are, you're assaulted with on a daily and a weekly basis for you to start to begin to say, hey, I, I, I might start doubting the Bible. Well, that, listen, that's a ploy of Satan, and he's used it since the very first days for you to do that. We have to be certain, we have to be convinced that the Bible is the very Word of God, that it is holy and inspired, that it is infallible, that it is authoritative and reliable. You are placing your entire destiny and eternity on the words of Scripture. And once you get to a point where you say, I can trust the entirety of the Word of God, then you begin to live in holiness to Him. You begin to be fruitful and effective for, for the kingdom of God. This ploy of Satan... This arrow that he shot in Genesis, he still shoots it today, and he's been firing it away, but now he uses it by means of false prophets, false teachers. In the Old Testament, you can, you, I won't walk you through all of it, lest we be here, and it would take us five years to get through Second Peter if we did that, but I'll, I'll uh, condense it down for you. All throughout the Old Testament, there would be false prophets who would arise, false teachers who would arise, casting doubt on what the prophet of God had said. You see over and over and over again this phrase, beware of false prophets, beware of false prophets. A.W. Pink has this lengthy quote that is helpful to us to, to help us summarize this section. He says this, beware of false prophets. The force of this exhortation will be the better perceived as we take to heart what is found in the Old Testament, bearing in mind that history has ever repeated itself since Human nature is the same in all ages. A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The, the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means. Then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spoke I unto them. They prophesy unto a false vision and divination, and a, a thing of naught, and the deceit of their heart. I have I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem a horrible thing. They commit adultery and they walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers that none do return from his wickedness. They are all of them unto me as Sodom. Thus the Lord of hosts hearken not unto the words of the prophet that prophesy unto you. They make you vain, a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord there is conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the play, the prey. They have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure of precious things. They have made her many widows. Then he says this, false prophets were one of the chief factors in the apostasy and destruction of Israel. And these passages are recorded for our admonishing and warning. What is he saying? He's saying this, history is just going to continually repeat itself 
over and over and over and over again. And the, prof- the false prophets that were used in the Old Testament, their message, their lies, their stories, it's just getting repeated again over and over and over and over and over again into today. There to deceive and to pull you away from God. And, and if you even allow your eye to draw down to chapter 2 in Second Peter, the entire chapter is about false prophets. The warning of false prophets who are going to come and deceive you. And this is what Satan uses. He is the master of lies and he brings in false prophets who bring this same falsehood and lies to the world. He wants you to deny the existence of God. Why does he want you to deny the existence of God? Because if there is no God, then there is no accountability in your life. You can do whatever you want if there is no God. You become your own God. And this is exactly what is happening in the time of, of Peter when, when Peter would write in his jail cell this second uh, letter to those whom he loved and through these believers is he wanted them to be certain. He wanted them to be sure that God's word is truthful that you can rely on the Word of God. And the best way to do that is to know the truth, to know the truth. Now, we talked about this, and let me just kind of give us a a bit of a reminder here and a a runway here as we jump into verse 16. Second Peter is about knowing your Bible. (laughs) Let's just boil it down. Second Peter is about knowing your Bible. He even says this, verse 2. He can't even get past verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you, what? In the knowledge of God. Verse 3, he says, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through what? The knowledge of Him. Verse 5. At the end of verse 5, he wants you to grow with knowledge, verse 6, and knowledge with self-control. He wants you to increase in these things in verse 8, for these qualities are yours and increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He even sums up the book in chapter 3 in verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And here is why he wants you to know your Bible. Here is why he wants you to know the truth, because the best way to counter what is false is to know what is true. And so Peter keeps hitting this over and over and over again. And he tells us, you need to know matters of salvation, verse 1 and 2. You need to know matters of sufficiency, verse 3 and 4. And you need to know matters of sanctification, verse 5 all the way down to verse 11. Then he spends an entire paragraph convincing you that you need to hear this over and over and over and over again. He says, I'm going to remind you. I'm going to remind you. I'm going to remind you. Yes, Again and again and again, I'm going to remind you that you need to know your Bible. Why? Because there's false prophets out there who want to lure you away from the truth. And if you don't know the Word of God, you will fall prey to them. And my hope is, as it says in verse 15, as Peter says this, I'm going to make every effort for you to do this. Why? So that at any time, you'll be able to remember the truth. Recall these things to mind. So over and over again, you're going to hear me say it again. Church, you need to know your Bible. You need to know what's in it.
You need to know what it says. Lest you be susceptible to the dangers of false prophets, to the dangers of the culture, to the dangers of sin and temptation, you need to know the Word of God. And listen, this is why Redemption Hill Bible Church is committed to knowing the Word of God. This is why you sit under preaching for maybe longer than you'd like, but this is why we do it. This is why we have Bible studies. This is why we have men's groups and women's groups who come together for the sole purpose of encouraging one another through the understanding of the Word of God. May we never be a church that says, we know enough of the Bible, let's talk about more important things. What's more important than understanding truth? Because that truth is going to inform everything about you. The truth is the best defense against false teaching. It's the best offense in spreading the gospel. And so look what Peter does immediately in verse 16. He begins to defend the truth. Verse 16, he says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. An accusation is coming up that the things that Peter was saying was simply a myth. They weren't true. These are just lies. Peter is just storytelling, like the false prophets were do, doing. They were, uh, they, these people were undermining Peter and the apostles and what they were saying about the gospel, and they were causing uncertainty amongst the people and amongst the believers. And so Peter states it very clearly. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. What are myths? What, what is he talking about? Well, the essential nature of a myth is this, is that, it, uh, is that they represent man-made substitutes for God's inspired word. Greek mythology, Roman mythology, you have all these these, these gods that, that are created, Zeus, Cupid, Poseidon, Apollo, maybe my favorite, Nike uh, is in there, Hercules, all of these. And you have Thanos, Black Panther, Hulk, Wolverine, wait, no, that's uh, Marvel, sorry. All these Greek myths, all these, these Roman uh, myths and stories that they have, why were they, why were they created? As substitutes to the word of God. To make you think like, oh, the word of God is just like these Greek myths. They were there to undermine the word of God. And Peter says this, we did not follow clever myths. These cleverly devised ones that are, that are, that are so close to being true. And he's even saying this in particular, he's saying, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths. When what? When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When, when he started teaching on the second coming, he's saying, it's not a myth. Jesus is going to return. Christ is going to return. We, we did not make this up. Why, why were they so concerned about, about Jesus' Jesus' return? Why are they so concerned about, about Peter's teaching on, on the second coming? Well, they're so concerned about this because they don't want Jesus to return because when Jesus does return, what's he going to do? He's going to hold them accountable to the things they've been doing. So let's just say this whole idea of Jesus returning is an entire myth. Then that gets us out to being accountable for our lives. They rejected the second coming as 
David Helm says, he says this, their rejection of the second coming had more to do with their desire to dis dismiss the notion that everyone will be held personally accountable for moral and ethical infidelity than anyone else. This should not come as any surprise. Within the history of the church, there have been always been teachers willing to tell you that you are free to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want, without fear of divine punishment. This insidious teaching rests upon the false premise that insists that because God is love, God will forgive all vices that were once thought of as incompatible with the godly virtue. In essence, the doctrine of the second coming was jettisoned because people want to secure the ability to live as they please. So Peter, what you're saying about the second coming, it's simply a myth. It's not true. We're not going to be held accountable for our actions. We can live however we want. We can do whatever we want. And then Peter gives us two reasons for the certainty of the Word of God, starting at the end of verse 16 there. And the first certainty is, his response to that is this, he was an eyewitness, the eyewitness of the apostles. He basically says this, you want to talk about the second coming? Oh, I've got a story for you. Let's talk about the second coming for a second. You think this is a myth? Okay. He says this, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Those of you who are in any sort of legal understanding or in law or you like watching the old Perry Masons or anything like that, then you would understand the importance of an eyewitness. If you had an eyewitness, that was golden. And Peter says this, we were eyewitnesses. We were there. This word for eyewitnesses, it means this, it, it refers to those who have firsthand acquaintance with something, and so are those who see with their eyes with implication of careful scrutiny, of being a watchful observer. So they weren't just someone who, who casually saw in the distance Jesus Christ doing what he was doing. No, this was somebody who was carefully scrutinizing the very path and the very words of Jesus. A, a watchful observer, Peter was saying, I was there. I saw Christ. I was with Christ. I, I, I had a careful inspection of the Lord's majesty. He had a personal experience with Christ for years, and we, we've talked through this, and we've walked through this over the, over the weeks, and, and we know this, that Peter was there for the firsthand teaching of Jesus Christ. He, he watched him as he showed compassion and did miracles, and when Jesus would teach in the synagogue, Peter was there as, as Jesus would teach important doctrines of, of heaven on hell, the Holy Spirit, the purpose of life the church, morality, the power of the cross. Peter was there with all of those things. He was an eyewitness to Jesus Christ. Four times in these verses, he talks about twice hearing from Jesus, twice seeing or being with Jesus. And then he gives us a specific example. And that example is this, the account of the transfiguration. He says in verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and we ourselves heard, we ourselves heard this 
very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What is he talking about? Well, we got to turn to Matthew 17. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 17 because Peter's going to give us this experience of the transfiguration and what happened there. Matthew 17 and verse 1. If you're not sure what the transfiguration is, we'll, we'll kind of walk through this. It says this, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. So you got four of them going up, as it says there, to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared with him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. This is, this is great. Lord, if you wish, I'd like to make my home here with you guys. The three of us, we could have our own home. Three tents. I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. You guys got to stay here. We got to do this together. And verse 5, he was still speaking when... Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, here it is, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to them. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Yes, you would have been terrified too, just, just so we're clear. All of us would have done that. Verse 7, but Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of this vision until the Son of Man is, is raised from the dead. What happens in this moment is you have Jesus here transfigured into this brilliant, translucent light. It even says there, his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And what was Jesus doing? Jesus was giving these three apostles here a preview of the second coming and the body of Jesus Christ. This is what Christ would look like. This was his transfigured body. A close preview that Peter would get only with James and John. And, and here these people are coming to them and saying, hey, you're, you're only, you're, you only learn this from myths about the second coming. There's no second coming going to happen. And Peter goes, let me tell you a story. I was on a mountain, a holy mountain, and Jesus was there. His body was transfigured and Moses came and Elijah was there. And I stood with Jesus. I had a personal close encounter. I was an eyewitness with the Christ at the highest level to the, to the greatest degree. I had an experience with Jesus, listen, that no one else will have on this earth. You're telling me I, I made up a, a myth about Jesus? At the highest level, I saw Jesus. We saw his majestic glory, as it says there in verse 17. We saw his greatness. This magnificent glory of the Son of God. This is no myth. I, I was with him. I even heard from the heavens God speak to me. 
what I'm saying here and what we've been saying, what we write and what we teach is off of the eyewitness account and the understanding of all of the Old Testament is brought into the Word of God. And then what Peter does here after he validates that he is a personal eyewitness and what he has written wasn't some myth that was made up right after he says that. Look at verse 19 or verse 18 first. He says, we ourselves heard this voice from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. But then look at this, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying this. Not everybody's going to have an experience. But you don't need an experience. You've got something more fully confirmed. You have the word of God. Peter knows this, that there's going to be those who are saying, hey, I never had an experience like that. I've never heard the voice of God. I've never seen God in translucent light. I, I've never seen these things. I don't have an experience. And, and he knows this, that, that humanity is going to go, I need an experience with God. I have to have an experience with God. I got to have get the little tinglys on the back of my neck. I, I got to have this emotionally driven force and, and the greater the better. And, and I got to keep working myself up to this an emotional highest level experience with God to know that God exists. And Peter says, no, you don't. You have the word of God. You've got the Bible. Immediately, he turns from, from this experience to saying, you have a more fully confirmed word of God. And some of your Bibles say, a more sure word. I'm so thankful for this verse. Because I got to tell you, I've never heard from God. I, I've never had a moment where God spoke to me audibly. If he did, I wouldn't even know if it was him. Because there's nothing in the Bible that teaches me how to test the voice of God. There's verses in the Bible that teach me how to test the spirits, but not the voice of God. I've never had that moment. I've never had a divine encounter with God in a, in a, in a high level like Peter has. But you want to know something? I am fully convinced that this is the word of God. I am fully convinced that Jesus saved me. I am fully convinced of those things. And you know what? If I die and never have that experience, I don't ever think I will, I, it's not going to change how convinced I am that this is the Word of God. This is Peter's argument. I've had that experience, and guess what, church? You don't need the experience that I had. You'll never have that. In that way that Peter had that. And he says this, but you don't need it. You have a more sure word. More sure than the transfiguration? Yes, more sure than that. Peter says that. He wants us to be so sure, wants us to be so certain. Something that would trance, uh, something that would be higher than any experience that we would have. In fact, you could say this, Peter places his experience in submission to the promises and prophetic word of God. And an experience, listen church, does not trump the word of God. An experience does not trump the word of God. God's word is the final authority 
on everything. He just said it in verse 3. You have everything you need that pertains to life and godliness in Jesus Christ. Where do you find Jesus Christ? In the Word of God. Peter had an unparalleled supernatural experience. It was genuine. It was real. It was heavenly. And Peter says this, you have a more fully confirmed book right in front of you. It is sitting on your lap. Don't go searching for new revelations. Don't go searching for new prophecy. Don't go searching for a new experience. Don't go run to the church where all you get is this high emotional experience with no depth. Run from that place. It is making you more susceptible to false teaching. About 10 to 15 years ago, there's a book that came out called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. A guy by the name of uh, a kid at the time, he's, he's older now, older teenager now, Alex Malarkey. I didn't make up his last name. That's actually his last name. He, had a, he really had a, a tragic accident, a car accident, and after the car accident, he, he said that he would, had been visited by angels and demons. He was in a coma for two months. He wrote that he traveled through a bright tunnel and was greeted by five angels, met Jesus, told him that he would survive. Later, he saw 150, and I quote, pure white angels with fantastic wings. Heaven has lakes and rivers and grass. God sits on a throne near a scroll that describes the end times. The devil has three heads with red eyes, moldy teeth, and hair made of fire. And this book sold over a million copies. Years later, Alex Malarkey says none of it was true. In fact, he sent a letter to a conservative Christian blog that dramatically renounced the book. He says, and I quote, I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. People have profited from lies and continue to do so. We can't trust our own experiences. We can't even trust our own feelings. We can't trust our own dreams. We can't trust our own, vis- our own voices or the voices in our own head, let alone somebody else's. That book did so well, there was a three-year-old boy named Colton who had a surgery of some sort. He, he wrote... Uh, came out and with the help of his parents wrote a book called Heaven is for Real. In Heaven is for Real, Colton explains, his three-year-old boy explains that Jesus was riding on a rainbow-colored horse and and he sat in Jesus' lap while angels sang songs to him. This book was so popular that 10 million copies were sold and a book, excuse me, and a movie. First of all, I don't need a three-year-old to tell me what's going on in heaven. I've got the Bible to tell me that. And I can with 100% certainty that everything that's said in here is the truth. I don't depend on somebody's experiences. I don't depend on somebody else's dreams or visions or prophecies. I can't trust my own intuition at times. I'm not going to stake my eternal life on somebody else's, but I will stake it on this. And this is what Peter's saying. I was at the transfiguration and you have a more sure word in your lap. It trumps 
every single experience. The word of God is the final authority. And so what does he say to us? Look at the end here as we close. What does he say? He says, to, to which what? You will do well to what? To pay attention. <laughs> you will do well to pay attention. As what? As to a lamp shining in a dark place. In the midst of all the darkness that is around us, there is one bright, shining lamp. And what is it, church? It is the Word of God. It is the Word of God because what? It points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it would do well for us to pay attention. As a moth to a flame, we are attracted to it every single day, and we go back to it, and we go back to it, and we go back to it. And it even says there, you go down, it even says there, until the day dawns and the morning star rises, what? In your heart. You pay attention to it, not with just your head, but you pay attention to it until it goes deep into your heart, and you run to it, church. Faster than anybody would run to you with a new prophecy or a new revelation. You run to the sure word of God. It even closes in verse 20 and 21, which we'll look at next week. Knowing this, what does he stake this whole thing on? Knowing this, first of all, what? That no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. This doesn't come from me. I didn't make this up. He says it again. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but what? But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Next week, we'll look at the second reason why the Bible is true, and that is because of the inspired words of God. Well, at this time, we're going to have a, a moment of communion. Joel, why don't you and the rest of the team come on up, and we can start preparing our hearts for communion this morning. And to do that, as we come to the communion table, this really is an opportunity for us to kind of reflect back. It is an opportunity for us to reflect back on what Jesus has done for us, reflect back on the cross, reflect back even on our own sin. It's a time for us not only for reflection or remembrance, but it's also a time of repentance. So this during this time of just quiet meditation, I always like to say this, just kind of this invisibly draw, invisible circle around yourself where it's just a moment with you and the Lord thinking about the death of Christ, thinking about the blood that was shed on your behalf and just going to him and making sure things are right by way of sin in your life, even, even confessing sin before the Lord. Man, why don't you come up and we could start passing these, the the elements out as, as we bow before the Lord. And then as those are being passed, we'll, we'll sing a song together, or Joel will play in the background while we do that, and then I'll lead us through communion together. And just by way of a, a reminder, this is for any believer in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, we want you to take of these elements. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, we just ask that you just allow them to pass by. And allow this just for the church family to take. But why don't you do that now? Just take time individually before the Lord. Go before the Lord and bow before him. Thank him even for the inspired word of God. 
Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the communion table. Thank you for what it represents, what it means to us. The reminder, as we need constant reminders, that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us, for our sins. That through Jesus Christ alone and through the forgiveness of sins, by, by faith alone, and through grace alone, we can have a relationship with you forever. And Lord, we do thank you that you did not just come to the earth and die on the cross and leave and not allow for us to know the story, but you left for us the inspired word of God, a more sure word. And we're thankful for that. And Lord, I know that there's, there's many of us who have experienced God, who've had many, many experiences of the grace of God, of times and stories that we can tell, where we know, God, it was you who moved. This church is a picture of an experience with God, where you moved, and many of us can tell stories like that, and we're so thankful for those stories. But at the end of the day, Lord, we know that those experiences line up underneath the authority of Scripture, and that your word has the final say. In Jesus' name, amen.